Welcome, 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 welcome everybody to the Neurological Deep Dive. I am your host, Ferret Fawns, and today we have another special show with Gospel Dawn. Gospel Dawn, take it away. Hi everybody, welcome to the Gospel Hour with Dawn. My name is Donald, and today we're going to take a deep dive into this topic. God discriminates, and so must we. No book on earth teaches us about God and about what He is like and what He expects of us more accurately and more fully than the Holy Bible, especially the King James Version. This book consists of God's preserved and infallible words. This monarch of books, this book of all books, will not lead anyone astray from the true God from virtue or from any degree of truth. To discriminate, what does that mean? It means, according to the dictionaries, to differentiate, to distinguish, to separate, or to use good judgment. It means to make a distinction as in favor of or against a person or thing. It means to note or observe a difference, to note or distinguish as different. And I got that from the American College Dictionary dated 1961. Discrimination may also mean, quote, to make a difference in treatment or favor on a basis other than individual merit. And that's from Webster's Ninth Dictionary. So in this sense, discrimination may be good or bad. Some bad dictionaries probably Wikipedia and, and others like that, they say to discriminate means to victimize or to show prejudice, which is a perversion of the term. In this deep dive, I will not use the word discriminate in this sense. It does not mean to victimize or to show prejudice. Modern dictionaries, especially some of them on, on computer, they often redefine words to promote an evil agenda. Social planners often twist the meanings of words, such as the word gay, which really means bright or merry, happy. Marriage, which is a union between one man and one woman for life. But they like to twist the word marriage, thinking that it also involves same-sex marriage. Social justice, it's just another word for communism. Or the word hate, they like to misuse that word too, and diversity and equity and words like this. So we have to really get to the true meaning of words. You got to understand Satan used the things of God and pervert the things of God. The good words in the dictionary are often perverted. And the reason why is that's how they deceive. So let's look at the, that word prejudice. Prejudice is the act of prejudging or passing judgment on prematurely or prior to investigation. It means, quote, an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, without thought or reason, end quote. That's what prejudice means. To discriminate and to show prejudice are two different concepts. And so are discriminate and victimize. They don't mean the same thing. They're two different concepts. God does not pass judgment apart from reason, knowledge, and fairness. God is not prejudiced or slanted in his thinking at all. 
But he surely does discriminate in many ways, and he commands us to do the same. God discriminates, in other words, he distinguishes, in favor of some ideas, actions, and motives, and he discriminates or, dis or distinguishes against others. He makes a difference, in other words. He favors or approves some beliefs, some choices, and some people, and he disfavors and disapproves, even hates others. That's, that's the God of the Bible that I'm, I'm defining. So God does discriminate, and so must, must we. Well, we're going to try to cover all five of these different topics, five ways in which God discriminates, and we must also. Here's the first way. God discriminates, or he makes a distinction, based on religion and religious beliefs, and so ought we. Religion means belief in the true God, in his revelation to man, in man's obligation to obey his commands, and in man's accountability to him. That's the meaning of religion. Pure religion is knowing God. It is practicing godliness. It is helping the needy. It's unworldliness, and it's fulfilling the law. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's a good definition of true or pure religion. Another good definition is found in Hosea in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 6. And he, it says this, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So true religion has to do with showing mercy and obtaining the knowledge of God. That's true religion. Here's another passage. In Romans chapter 13, verse 10, it says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's pure religion. And we also see the same thing in James chapter 1, verse 27. I'm going to read here. It says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You notice how Pure religion involves practical obedience to the laws of God and caring for the needy, caring for the underprivileged, to visit the fatherless and widows. Notice how these are described as the needy, those that don't have a father and widows who do not have a husband. You see how the needy are those that are deprived of a man in the home. When there's no man in the home, that home is underprivileged and that home need, needs help uh, as a rule. And so uh, these are good words from the Bible that describe pure religion. And God discriminates on the basis of religion and religious beliefs. In the First Amendment to the Constitution, it states this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. That's the First Amendment to the Constitution. This is a dictate that Congress, which is the only law-giving branch of the U.S. government, Congress and all government officials must obey this. This First Amendment restricts the politicians, in other words, and it confines them to this law. They have no right to make rules for any establishment of religion and no government official has any right to prohibit the free exercise of religion, keeping in mind 
the true definition of religion. In the minds of these people who wrote this, true religion to them, or religion to them, meant biblical Christianity. It meant supreme love to God and obedience to his commands, as made known in his words. And all the founders of America believed the Bible was the word of God. And so this is a a directive pointed to Congress. So Congress has no right to make laws for churches or, or Christian establishments, such as, remember when they tried to make laws to wear masks in church? The government had no right to do that. And I'm not sure how much they put the pressure. They used the businesses to put pressure on churches and and whatever. But they have no right to do that. Or to require personal distancing in churches. Or to require handicapped parking spaces in churches. Or to require the acceptance of bad people in churches. Congress cannot require that of churches. They're restricted according to this First Amendment. Congress is obligated to give law for the land, but only as it is in keeping with God's laws and with pure religion and with goodness. And may I add also, it must be in keeping with the preamble of the Constitution. Now, let me just read that. Here's the preamble of the Constitution. The preamble is basically the goal or the intent of the the Constitution. It says this, We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So everything in the Constitution that is written must be filtered under this preamble, under this statement here. In other words, this is the true intent of the Constitution. Now, can you have a more perfect union if you ignore Bible Christianity? The answer is no way. Can you establish justice apart from depending on the Bible? No, you can't. Not real justice. Can you ensure domestic tranquility? Not really. Provide for the common defense? Promote the general welfare? Or is a government able to provide the general welfare if they do if they do not look to the Bible? The one who teaches, love thy neighbor as thyself, they really can. Or secure the blessings of of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. There's no way that any of this can be done if we ignore the principles of the Bible or the principles of biblical Christianity. So um, the founding fathers meant that God should be governing this country. That's really what they meant. And the Bible should be the, the foundation for law and for jurisprudence and for law-giving and, and all that. Now, I'm reading in Second, Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 3, it says this, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Now, how do you understand justice without the principles of the Bible? How do you understand ruling in the fear of God? unless we read the Bible. So um, that's just one of those verses that teach that uh, rulers need to be listening to God. You see, God is the supreme king of the universe. He's the supreme lawgiver. By the way, he's not a lawmaker. He's a lawgiver. The law is eternal. It's as eternal as God is. And moral law does not change ever. So that's an important thing. He, God is the lawgiver. He recognizes good law and he gives it. 
And uh, I've not, not found the word lawmaker in the Bible, but I found the, law, the word lawgiver referring to Judah and referring to God uh, several times. So that is in the Bible. But God is the supreme king, supreme lawgiver, supreme judge over all the universe, including over all government officials in all countries. Whether we like it or not, that is a fact. Every one of us are going to have to give an account to God someday, whether you're a politician or just a citizen. This means no branch of the U.S. government has the right to prohibit free speech approved by God or prohibit the free exercise of religion approved by God. Since God hates all sins and he hates every false way, so must we. Since God hates all immorality, foul and slanderous speech, and false religion, so must we. So must all government officials and politicians. God discriminates in these matters, and so must we. No judge, no governor, no president, no lawmaker or lawgiver, no police officer has the right to interfere with or prohibit in any way a person who is following pure religion or following biblical Christianity. Those that do so are violating the First Amendment, violating the preamble of the Constitution, violating moral law, violating common law, and violating especially God's law. And so that is very important that we all pay attention to, to what God is saying in, in, these, um, in His Word. So that's the law of God. That's the law of the Constitution, that we never hinder anyone in the matter of following pure religion. We should never do that. So this First Amendment is not a dictate addressed to citizens, families, or businesses, but only to Congress. And Congress, of course, is the only law-giving branch of government. Heads of homes, churches, and businesses have the God-given right and duty to establish rules of conduct and rules of speech so long as they do not violate moral law as defined by Almighty God and declared in the Holy Scriptures. God commands all persons, including all politicians, to obey Him supremely and to worship Him only. This requires discrimination. Here's some verses from the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. It says this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a command. Here's another one, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. That's a command. In other words, obedience to God must be supreme. Supreme over any other being on earth or in heaven. No person, no politician in any land has the right to follow their own religion or beliefs in defiance to the one and only true religion, as revealed in their conscience and as revealed most perfectly in the Holy Book, which would be God's Word, the Bible. So um, we do have the right to private judgment and to follow our conscience more than other rules and other beliefs. But of course, in order to have a pure and a good conscience, we need to make sure that we have our conscience instructed by God's book, by God's word, or by God himself. Here's another verse. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. This is pure religion, and none of us have the right to violate this command at all. Here's another command. 
in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36, it says this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Why is God's wrath abiding on him? Only he, uh, he abides on, God's wrath abides on those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, even the Lord Jesus is referenced in the Constitution. Um, one of the last paragraphs of the Constitution, it mentions the year of our Lord. So they made reference to the Lord Jesus there. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see how narrow this is and, and how um, th there is no other way to know the true God other than through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says there is one, only one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. And when it says one body, it means one true, true church of Christ. And uh, of course, that means all true believers who in Christ who are scattered throughout the world, that makes up his church. There might be one person in your town who is following Christ. That's where the true church is. Whoever is committed to Christ, that's the body of Christ right then and there. There might only be one person. And of course, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. You don't need a big group to have a real church. There's only one true religion in the universe. And as I said, it's biblical Christianity. The degree to which we trust and obey the Holy Bible, properly interpreted, is the degree to which we trust and obey the one true God. Now, what about tolerance? Does God want us to tolerate and be kind to those of different beliefs and different persuasions? Absolutely. Tolerance toward those who differ from us or from biblical Christianity is an important part of our duty to God and man. If people differ from us or teach false doctrine, Jesus said to let them alone. He says that in Matthew 15, verse 14. And he also says to those that differ, he says, do not take the law into, into your own hands. Now I'm reading in Matthew chapter 13, just a few verses here. He, and in verse 28, it says, he said unto them, he's explaining the parable of the tares, or he's actually giving the ter parable of the tares. And he said unto them, an enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now he's giving the parable there. Well, later on the disciples said, Can you declare unto us this parable? What does that mean? And so down the road, a few verses down, verse 37, Jesus answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. Notice the field is not, um, um, these are my words now, I'm not reading here, but th the field is not the church. The church must rid itself of bad apples, okay? But here the Bible says the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one, children of the devil, in other words. 
The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned into the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. End quote. That's in Matthew 13. Now, Jesus said, if there are some that are tares, they're not true Christians, it says, wait until God returns, till the end of the world, it says. And then the angels will deal with it. So God is, or Jesus is saying, for us not to punish those who differ from us. We have no right to use the government to put heretics in jail, so to speak, like Rome did for many years, uh, many centuries in the, in the past. Rome did that. They linked up with governments and those who were heretics, they had them burnt at the stake. William Tyndale, who was instrumental in producing, uh, the, he was like a forerunner producing the King James Bible. He was burnt at the stake because he did the crime of producing a Bible in the English language in Great Britain and in England. And uh, so Rome caught up to him and they had him tried and he was found guilty of a crime, heresy. So that's, uh, this is, uh, it's important that we do not take the law into our own hands. So Jesus also said this, he said not to give that which is holy unto the dogs or cast pearls before swine lest they rend you, it says. In other words, lest you anger them to a point that they're going to just destroy you or hurt you. So I think that there's another principle. If people are uh, scorning the word of God or rejecting the word of God, it just says don't cast pearls before them. Don't keep preach preaching to them and talking to them about God if they don't want to hear it, in other words. But that's called tolerance. So God wants us to be tolerant. God demands separation from open or constant sinners, but not to harm them in any way or to needlessly offend them. Here's some good principles that teach tolerance. Uh, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. End quote. Christ teaches us to love our neighbor, even and to even to love our neighbor as ourselves, but also to love our enemies. It teaches in Matthew chapter five, verse forty-four. In Romans twelve eight, it says, "As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men, but speak in truth and kind reproofs, motivated by motivated by love for God and love for people, are also a very big part of pure." religion. In Ephesians 4, we read these words, speaking the truth in love. We need to do that. It says this also, speak every man truth with his neighbor. That's in verse 25. It also says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That word reprove means expose them or rebuke. Speaking truth to, to hurt people is wrong, but speaking truth to help them and to help them to repent and be saved that is consistent with true kindness and with the will of God. So yes, we must be tolerant of people who go astray, but that does not give us the right to mis mistreat them in any way. It is eternally consequential for each of us to discriminate between true 
and false beliefs. Here's another verse, Isaiah 5, 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, it's important that we discriminate between true and false beliefs and between true and false believers. If we don't discriminate, we're going to go down the broad way that leads to destruction. Because in Matthew 7, it says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So that's the first point I wanted to to make, uh, to, to point out, is that um, God discriminates based on our religious beliefs. And so ought we. He says that all unbelievers will... The wrath of God abides on them. That sounds like he does not approve of those who reject Christ. Now, here's another way in which God discriminates. God discriminates based on moral character, and so must we. Now, this is similar to the first, but I want to say this. God is infinitely holy and benevolent. He has perfect moral clarity. He has given us his perfect rules of right and wrong in the Bible. His laws conduce to the temporal and eternal happiness of humanity. They are eternally binding on all moral agents. Moral law is fixed and never changes over time. Although certain rites and ceremonies have changed, moral law has not. What was morally right or wrong 6,000 years ago is still right or wrong today. And it will be right or wrong 6,000 years from now. Moral law is fixed. And here are some verses in the Bible that teach that. Psalm 119, 142. It says this, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Here's another verse. The righteousness of thy testimonies of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. That's in Psalm 119, 144. Here's another one. Psalm 119, 160. It says this, quote, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever, end quote. The Marxists, the leftists, the Romanists may think they can change or abolish eternal truths and fixed morality. Why? Because they kind of think that they are higher and wiser than God. They will never say this verbally, but they act that way. But these people who think morality changes with time, they can only deceive and pressure the masses through brainwashing and through sensitivity training. Moral, moral truth is absolute and it never changes, which Judgment Day will prove conclusively to all people that uh, God's law was right and it is eternal. Now, I mentioned sensitivity training. It's amazing how people are being trained to be sensitive to the feelings of either ignorant people or immoral people. But how about this? How about becoming sensitive to God's feelings? What does God think of this? And that's what sensitivity training really should be about. But it's almost never about what God thinks. God's feelings never enter into the equation with a lot of these Marxists and these social planners. God approves all decisions, actions, and motives that are in keeping with his laws, and he disapproves or condemns all actions and all motives that are contrary 
to his laws. God's laws are perfect, it says in Psalm 19, chapter 19, verse 7. The reason God hates every form of disobedience to moral law is because it destroys people. And it especially destroys the one who does the disobeying. That's the amazing thing. I'd rather be the victim of a sinner and a criminal than to be the criminal. Because uh, if you're a criminal, you're going to pay for it. If you're the victim of a crime, you're not, you're, you're going to pay for, you know, you, you will have some pain, but it's not going to be uh, everlasting pain necessarily uh, if you're right with God, you know. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 18, it says this, One sinner destroyeth much good. That's why God hates every form of sin, because it does so much damage to people, to children, to families, to whole societies. And that's why we must oppose sin as much as we are able to. So we must discriminate based on moral character. In other words, some actions are wrong. And some are right. So let's get a little specific here. God has always condemned, and he always will condemn, the act of lying, and he will always condemn liars. The Bible says all liars shall be cast into the lake of fire. It says that in Revelation 21.8 and in, I think, a few other places. So all liars, in other words, those who keep on lying. You've probably lied in your past. Well, if you have, I would repent. Confess it to God or to those you've lied to and hurt, and then make it right with God. God has always hated murder and will condemn all murderers. The word murder means the unlawful killing of a human being. You cannot murder your cat or your dog or a horse. That's not murder. That's, that's called killing him. But when it says thou shalt not kill, Jesus explained that in the Gospels, and he, 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 instead of saying, thou shalt not kill, he used the word murder. And that's what God means when he says, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill a human being, meaning for selfish reasons, or unlawfully, or having malice in your heart. If you have malice in your heart and you kill somebody, that's murder. Or if you kill somebody because you just want an easier life, uh, then that's murder. That's called selfishness. God condemns hatred and those who hate. Here's a verse. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. That's in 1 John chapter 3, verse, 13, uh, verse 15. Hatred has many different forms. Here's one form of hatred. Slander, false accusation, gossip, putting a bad construction on a person's good deed. These are all forms of, of, of hatred. Or you're, you're driving in a car and you're speeding, you're going too fast, you're driving recklessly and endangering others in that car or maybe others on the road. That's a form of hatred. It's really, hatred is, forms in, is uh, based on selfishness. And selfishness is putting your own good, your own good ahead of the good of others. That's selfishness. Uh, theft, evil surmising, thinking the worst of people, especially when they even when they do good. Divorce, that's a form of hatred. 
No one ever divorces out of love for God or the children. Divorce always hurts people. Always. Murmuring. That's complaining and grumbling. You know, if you're married and you're always complaining about life, you're not being a blessing to your spouse or to the others in the family. It's a form of hatred to be always complaining. Fault finding. Some people like to just find fault. A critical spirit. This, these are all forms of hatred. Disrespect for authority. Put downs. Breaking commitments. You say you're going to be somewhere and you don't show up. and Or you don't do, do what you say you're going to do. You don't follow through. That, that's, that's a form of hatred. It, sometimes it's a milder form, but it's still hatred. And God doesn't want us to hate people. So here's another one. Uh, God hates sexual perversion. He hates unlawful marriages. He hates unlawful lusts including fornication, and fornication means carnal union between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman. He hates fornication. He hates adultery. Adultery is the violation of the marriage bed. He hates self-abuse, incest, pedophilia, same-sex lust, homophilia, or it's also called homosexuality. And all these things are condemned in God's words. And if, if you don't believe me, you can read about it in Leviticus 18, in Romans 1, especially the last half of Romans chapter 1, and also 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. to You can read those passages and you'll see that God hates all these things. So God discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation. Did you know that? And we must also if we want to be right with God. Sexual disorientation must not be given protected class status. Okay? Because that's really what it's all about. They are protecting sexual disorientation. And the laws of the land are protecting that. And that just goes to show that the laws of the land are not in keeping with God's laws. And they are destroying society big time. And we wonder why we're dealing with transgenderism and people trying to change genders and things like that. Well, it stems from feminism and from feminism to this protection of sexual disorientation. And it just goes from bad to worse. And that's what's happening. We wonder why all these corrupt ideas are these corrupt uh, practices are being promoted in, in public. And, and it's all because we've surrendered some of these principles 100 years ago. 150 years ago, we were surrendering some of these godly principles. And now we're reaping the effects of it in our society, in our children. Our homes are breaking up. It's really sad what's going on. So does God discriminate on the basis of character? He definitely does because none of these people who commit these sexual perversions, none of them will be allowed into heaven. They're, they need to be forgiven and they will never be forgiven if they don't repent and change their ways and give their hearts to God. So God also hates the practice of women ruling over men or wives ruling over husbands or dominating husbands or wives divorcing or separating from their husbands for any reason. There's no good reason. Nowhere does the Bible uh, 
condone a woman leaving her husband. Why? Well, she made a promise, and so did he, to stay together for life, for better or for worse. God also uh, discriminates against wives disobeying or not reverencing their husbands. And that word reverence is a notch higher than honoring. It's almost worship. It doesn't mean worship, but it's close. And it's a little higher than honor because uh, we are to honor all men. But wives are to honor their husbands. Yes, absolutely, they are to obey them. But they are also bound by God to reverence their husbands. Their husbands. And that's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. God hates or disfavors men who will not act as heads over their wives and over their children. And uh, does not when men do not try to rule over them in love, God doesn't like that. He disfavors those men. He wants the men to, to be manly and to take charge in the home and to act as the head of the home. Not just to be a, a figurehead, but to be the actual head in his actions and in his way of dealing. And of course, to be the head doesn't mean you're mean, doesn't mean you're abusive, of course. It means you love. And that's what we need to do. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loves the church. And at the same time, he says, and the husband is the head of the wife. So being the head does not mean you lack love. In fact, it's true love that will cause men to act as the head because they love their the ones under them, the ones under their authority. God hates marital separation, as I already said, and divorce. And those who instigate these crimes, God hates. And those who consent with these crimes, God hates. So, and I could show you a lot of verses, maybe someday I'll talk more and in depth about uh, divorce. It's a plague in our society. It's destroying homes. And without the foundation, without the home, a society has no foundation. Without a, uh, a, a strong homes, society will crumble. That's a fact of life. And the communists know it. The Jesuits know it. The social planners know that. And that's why they're doing everything in their power to destroy the home, while at the same time making it look like they care. They care for families. They care for children. But they really don't. Their policies reveal that these people do not care one bit about human life. God makes distinctions and treats people differently based on their moral character. And we must do the same. We must keep within the guidelines of Scripture and true love and accept that God is the final judge of those who commit these sins. God wants churches to put away from their midst those who commit open sin or scandalous sin or those who persist in sin after being reproved. See, God wants us to discriminate. Even churches must discriminate. They must excise from their midst those that are persistent sinners. Why? Because one bad apple will ruin the whole bunch. Sin is very infectious. And God wants individual Christians to separate from churches that persist in false teaching or in pernicious doctrines. And God wants uh, Christians to separate from churches that maintain fellowship with persistent sinners. See, churches have to 
put away from among them that wicked person. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in uh, the last verse. Yes, God loves all people in that he wants to bless all and he wants to forgive everyone. But he does not love everyone in the sense that he accepts or delights in everyone. God's favor, God's forgiveness, and God's delighting love is not unconditional. I repeat, God's favor, God's forgiveness, God's delighting love is not unconditional. There are conditions we must meet in order to have God's favor and forgiveness and delighting love. God will only favor, forgive, and save those who repent and believe in His Son and continue in that state of faith and obedience. God wants us to love as He loves, but He does not want us to trust or accept anyone indiscriminately or give protected class status to the immoral or those who are disobedient to God's law. We must choose to evaluate and judge ourselves first and foremost. See, we must discriminate based on character. So if you've got bad character, if I have bad character, I've got to judge it, realize it, and forsake it as quickly as possible. So our most uh, severe work should be on our own hearts, in our own hearts. Like somebody said, make your bed first. Before you fix somebody else, fix yourself first. Make sure you are saved. But we must evaluate and judge or estimate others also. That is part of minding our own business. we got to help others get out of the mud get onto the right road. We've got to do that and do that as much as we can, as much as we're able to. We must learn to make value judgments on behavior and discriminate based on moral character in order to regulate our own conduct and in order for us to stay right with God. So we've got to make value judgments on conduct, on motives, on behavior, but especially be hard on ourselves harder on ourselves than on anyone else. That's why Jesus says, first take the beam out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the moat out of somebody else's eye. If we're not cleaning up ourselves and taking the, the beam out of our eye, guess what? We're not going to see well, will we? We're not going to have discernment. And we're not going to be able to discern right from wrong because there's sin in our lives. Evil men, the Bible says, understand not judgment. That's why uh, judges who do a lot of judging need to be morally upright people. Since God will not allow certain bad characters into heaven, we too must not allow certain characters into our homes, into our churches, into our organizations, into our circle of trusted friends, and also into our nation. We should not be allowing bad actors to cross our borders and to come in illegally. That's why you, you have borders. Well, you need borders for a nation. You need borders in a state even, or in a, uh, or at least in a home and in a church, you need borders. So since God discriminates based on morals and morality, 
so must we. That's the second point. Here's the third point. God discriminates based on gender, and so must we. In the beginning, God made them male and female. It says that Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Jesus said the same thing, by the way, in Matthew 9, verse 4. So gender confusion stems from the spirit of Antichrist and from Babylon. And by the way, the word Babylon really means confusion, disorder, mixture. So if you've got a problem uh, with uh, ha with the concept that there are only two genders in the human race, then you have a problem with Genesis, the Bible, which would be the Torah. And you also have a problem with the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus said there's only two genders. God made them male and female. So um, Jesus says that, and I I'm going to just believe Jesus. Of course, you don't even have to believe Jesus on this point. You just have to believe your own eyes. So the effort to change genders or to combine both genders into one person is contrary to reason. It's contrary to nature, contrary to common sense, and it's especially contrary to God's will. Now, remember I said change genders. Some people try to change genders. You really can't. But they try to combine both genders into one person. Well, you know, I saw photo of Baphomet, and he's depicted as a hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite comes from the word Hermes and Aphrodite, male and female into one being. And if you look at Baphomet, who is really a picture of Satan or some satanic image, and a hermaphrodite is exactly what they're pushing in a society today, they try to make you accept both genders or try to make both, yeah, try to teach people that you can be both male and female at the same time. And this is stems from Babylon, which means confusion and mixture. Trying to change gender, which really cannot be done, will bring about serious consequences, both in this life and in the next. The choice to try to change genders reveals a serious lack of thankfulness to God for how he made us. And ungratefulness is the first step to vain imaginations, to foolishness, to all kinds of sexual perversions, and all kinds of other sins. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, all the way to the end. And in verse 21, it says, it says this, because that when they knew God, they were, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. See, a lot of people have a darkened understanding of the facts of life. And it's all because it all stems from being unthankful for what God has given you. Whatever body God has given you, just remember God gave it and be thankful for it. If you're very sick, thank God that you're not more sick. If you're slightly sick, thank God that you're not more sick. If you're healthy, thank God that you're healthy. If you're a male, thank God. God made you that way and learn to deal with it and learn to be the best male the best man, the best boy you can be. If you're a female, 
Learn to be feminine. Learn to be uh, the best lady you can possibly be. This is just common sense stuff that I'm afraid our culture is, is losing sight of. God commands us to accept our natural gender and to keep up gender distinction by maintaining a difference. There's that word difference. A distinction in role, in responsibility, in authority, in appearance, in dress, and in mannerisms. That's what God wants us to do. God discriminates, and so must we. Let's now consider how God established gender distinction and how he wants us to think and act accordingly. Let us consider some facts of life regarding the male and female gender and see how this establishes a difference in role, in responsibility, and in authority. Number one, God made man first, then the woman. You can read about it in Genesis 2, 18 to 23, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, and 1 Corinthians 11, 5, uh, 11 9. So if Genesis is wrong, then so is Jesus, because Jesus confirmed all these things. So God made the man first, then the woman. And if you want to argue, you're going to have to argue with God. I'm, I don't make up this stuff. I just am a Bible believer, and I don't. Um, I just believe what God has said in His written words. So I don't argue with God. That at least I try not to, and uh, hopefully you're not either. And so that's the first thing. God made man first, then the woman. Number two, God made the woman out of the man, and from his side. It says in Genesis chapter two. It says this, uh, verse 21 to 23, in one of those places it says, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. So a woman is really a man, meaning a person, a human being, that has a womb. The word womb, man, it's a com it com the word woman comes from that compound word, womb, and man. She's a man with a womb. And God wants her to use that womb for good purposes, of course. And so God made the woman out of the man and from his side. That's point number two. Number three, God made the woman for the man to be and help meet for him. Note that she was a she was made a helper not a helper like unto himself, as the Dewey version says, and not a helper comparable to him, as the New King James version says, but a helper meet for him. That word meet means fit. It means proper. It means convenient for him. She's just right. God made a, a, a creature that was just right for the man. She's convenient for him. And um, so... Then it says, uh, I, I got to, yeah. Then it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 9, it says this, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Eve's origin and purpose in life 
was derived from Adam, or at least largely from Adam. Also, since Eve sinned first and then coaxed her husband to sin, God said to her, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That word desire means request. Thy request shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. But I think probably more so it means affection. Thy affection shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. One person put it this way. Thy desire shall be subject to thy husband. In other words, if you want something, you're going to have to ask your husband. Why? Because he's going to have rule over you. And that's consistent with all of Scripture. Uh, that concept that God said to her, thy desire shall be subject to thy husband. Because he says in 1 Corinthians 11, the, the head of the woman is the man. And he says, as also saith the law, in uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, she is to be obedient, uh, as she's called to be obedient, as also saith the law. It says that, verse 34 of chapter 14. And then Ephesians 5, verse 22, says, Submit thyself, uh, wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. There's that word submit which really means obey or be in subjection to. And some people don't, they think the word obey is not found in the Bible. Well, it really is. It's found in Titus chapter 2, verse 5. And it tells the woman to be obedient unto your own husbands. So that verse, thy desire shall be to thy husband, means thy desire shall be subject to thy husband. Or as someone else put it, thou shalt be under thy husband's power and he shall have dominion over thee. I think that's well put. And I think that's what, that would be a, a good understanding of what that verse means. Because she was first to be deceived by Satan, first to sin, and then first to tempt another to sin. She was the first to tempt Adam to sin. Because of this, this is a reason for her to be subject to her husband. But it's only one reason. It's the second reason why she is to be subject to her husband. The first reason why she should be subject to her husband is that she was made after him. She was made out of him. And she was made for him. That's the first reason why she should be subject to her husband. But the second reason is because she was the first in the transgression. And she was the first to talk her husband into sinning. She was the first temptress. And uh, so these form the reason why God wants her to be subject to her husband, or at least women not be ruling over men in a public way. Now, her sin gave an added reason for her to be under obedience, which, by the way, works for her good, for her protection, in probably hundreds of ways. It is amazing how much good comes when a wife is subject to her husband. It will keep her out of trouble. It will keep her away from sin. It will keep her from talking to the wrong people. It will keep her from staying out too late with the 
with other people. Even women hanging around other women, it's not necessarily healthy. Because women, especially today, tend to be a bad influence to, to each other. A woman should cleave to her husband and submit to him. And that will keep her from so many sins. It's unbelievable. And uh, these things need to be said because obviously uh, people are not following these directions today. But I'm saying all that to say this, that uh, we must discriminate. God discriminates on the basis of gender. And so must we. The husband is the head of the wife. He's also called the Lord in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. He's also the owner of the wife. Now, this is where I get into trouble, but it's true. The wife belongs to the husband. If you don't believe me, read about it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And there are a lot of verses that confirm this. But it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's ox, thy neighbor's servants, or thy neighbor's wife. So that neighbor owns the house, the ox, the servants, which would be the slaves, and owns the wife. Now, she belongs to him. That's a fact of life once they're married. Now, she doesn't have to belong to him because she doesn't have to consent to be married. She doesn't have to make the vow. She could stay single. But she voluntarily enters into this marriage relationship and voluntarily becomes his wife, his possession. That's what she chooses at marriage. This is true marriage as God intended it. Now, I want to say this. A wife also owns her husband in the sense that he belongs to her. So he is her property also or her possession. He belongs to her as her companion. That's her special companion. That's her Lord. She has her Lord. That's her head. That's her husband. That's her lover. Husbands and wives belong to each other. And each have rights to the body of the other in the matter of intimacy. Uh, marital intimacy especially. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 to 5. And I'm hoping that as you listen to these podcasts, these deep dives, that you have your Bible handy and that you're checking up these references because I want you to believe the Bible, not me, because I'm not making this up. And it, you know, feel free to correct me, any of you to correct me. If I've said one statement wrong, then that makes me a, a deceiver, not on purpose, of course. I'm not purposely ever deceiving anybody, but I could be mistaken. And I want to be corrected if I am mistaken. So here's number five. God wants both genders to maintain distinctiveness in dress and in appearance. That word distinctiveness means discrimination. We should have discrimination in the way that we dress. Quote, Deuteronomy 22.5 says this, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Abomination means something detestable. God hates it. Now, this is not 
a Jewish ceremonial law. This is a moral law that is binding for as long as men and women exist. So it's as long as there are men and women. According to the biblical record, woman never wore breeches. Of the five places where breeches is mentioned in the Bible, only men wore them. Now, if you have a pen and pencil, you can take these references down. Exodus 28, verse 42. Exodus 39, verse 28. Leviticus 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 10. Leviticus 16, 14. And Ezekiel 44, 18. Now, it, that's the only place where I found the word breeches in the Bible. And, and they're always worn either by priests or, or at least by men. Priests, or should I say breeches, are defined in this way. They are defined as a garment worn by men covering the hips and thighs. They are called trousers. They're pantaloons, or we call them pants for short. But both genders wore robes in Bible times. But, according to Deuteronomy 22, those robes had to be distinct. They had to be different in form and different in appearance in order to be acceptable to God. So yes, God wants gender uh, uh, dress distinction among the genders. He does not want men to dress like women and women to dress like men. That's called cross-dressing. We wonder why there's all this gender confusion today. Well, the cross-dressing started in the 1950s through the influence of TV, controlled by guess who? The same actors all the time. The Illuminati controls the TV. The Council on Foreign Relations controls the, used to control the TV. They wanted to, a new world order way back then. And uh, they're basically there right now. So it is a sin for a man to wear long hair or a hat in church meetings or when a man prays, he should always take off his hat. And it's a sin for a woman to wear short hair or if she's praying and prophesying or if she's in church, she should. it's a sin for her to have no hat or no scarf or no veil on her head, no head covering. In other words, women need to veil their heads, cover their heads when they are engaging in Bible study or prayer, times of prayer, or in formal times of worship, definitely. And these principles are taught in the Holy Scriptures. I'm going to give you three, three verses. Genesis chapter 24, verse 65. Numbers chapter 5, verse 18. And 1 Corinthians 11, of course, talks about head coverings. And that's another principle. God, God wants us to keep up a distinction between the genders in the way that we dress and appear. Perhaps the most important thing Christians can do to oppose the tidal wave of gender confusion in our day is for males and females to dress, act, and assume the roles and responsibilities assigned to them by God. Let us all, male and female, adorn the gospel message by proper dress and by fulfilling the proper role and responsibilities that is suitable to our gender, our God-assigned gender, by the way. God does not want women to rule over men, 
wives to disobey husbands and things morally indifferent, and men to submit to their wives against their own best judgment or against God's will as they see it. God does not want these things. There is a difference, and to be a difference, between men and women. God forbids women from speaking in church or from teaching and addressing men in church or in a public setting. You see, these churches, churches, a lot of churches now are allowing women to preach. And we wonder why there's gender confusion. Well, it stems from 50 years ago, 70 years ago, even 100 years ago, when they allowed, when our government allowed women to vote, that was basically a big, that was a big part of making everything in America go downhill. And uh, it destroyed women. See, I, I, I'm, I try to think God's thoughts. God loves all men, women, and children. Well, I should too. And uh, it's not healthy when women vote because they will vote for bad people. It's it, as a rule, not always. Some some women do uh, vote very very good in accordance to God's word. But the Bible does teach the concept that women are more easily deceived. She was the first to be deceived, that's for sure. And Satan, being clever, worked on the woman first. He knew that if he could get the woman to fall, then that he would get all of society to fall. He'd get the man to fall. Because Adam gave in to love. His love for his wife caused him to sin. Whereas the woman, she was deceived by Satan. She thought she was doing good. And uh, so anyway, priests in the Old Testament had to be men, pastors. Pastors and elders must be men, according to the Bible. All women are disqualified from the office of bishop, elder, deacon, or pastor, or from the function of preaching to mixed groups. All women are excluded from that. That's God's word. And you can read about it, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 to 37. Make sure you read all those verses. Don't stop at just the first two. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. Read that, and you will see that God wants, I believe in those two passages, he tells women to be silent. I believe three or four times. The widespread movement to reverse gender roles to emasculate men and to give women more rights than what God permits stems from Satanism, from paganism, from goddess worship, Marxism, and Mary worship, the worship of Mary, the so-called Queen of Heaven and Mother of God, which is not true, of course, but that's what the Catholics call her. And so feminism is a major tactic for accomplishing the new world order. And by the way, this concept of don't discriminate, that's another tactic. Two of the social planners, they don't want us to think, actually. They don't want us to make distinctions between right and wrong, between true religion and false religion, or between males and females. And it's all satanic. And it has, and probably the biggest headquarters of Satan worship in America is most likely the Vatican. And if you don't believe me, read your Bible to turn it to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And the Vatican is described almost to a T in those passages. 
And uh, so feminism is a dangerous movement. Although God is a spirit, he is always referred to in scripture as a male and never as a female. God is our father, not our mother. God had an only begotten son, not an only begotten daughter. And Jesus, a man, a real man, not a long-haired man, as depicted in pictures, but Jesus, as a real man, a masculine man, is the savior of the world. And he is the ruler, and someday he's going to return, and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, it refers to God as the husband of Israel. It reads, part of the verse reads like this, For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. So God, the Lord of hosts, was not the wife of Israel. He was the husband of Israel. So you see how uh, there is an attack on the male gender in our society. It's really an attack on God. Because a man is in the image of God in a degree that a woman is not. Now, a woman with high character is in the image of God as far as her, her character is concerned. But as far as her gender is concerned, her gender does not reveal the image of God as much as a man does. And this is a fact of life found in the Bible and found in common sense. Jesus said this, or the Apostle Paul said this, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that verse, that's in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, this shows that a difference of authority or rank does not imply an inequality of essence or an inequality of nature. See, Christ was equal with his father, but Christ was also subject to his father. So being under someone's authority does not mean you're less of a person, and it does not mean you have less dignity. Just remember that. So this whole concept of a difference in rank is perfectly consistent with the Bible. And Jesus, by the way, he was always subject to his father. And do you know when he was a child, he was subject to his parents. The creator of the world became a baby, lived as a child. At 12 years old, it says he was subject to his mother and his father or his parents, to, to Joseph and Mary. Interesting. So being subject to someone does not mean you're less of a being. And it's very, very important to understand this concept. People are losing sight of that now nowadays. So Christ was subject to his father, yet he was equal in dignity and equal in divinity. So I mentioned three ways. And now real quick, I'm not going to talk much on this. I'm just going to just basically refer to them. God also discriminates based on properly constituted rank or authority or position. And so ought we. Persons of higher rank are entitled to proper submission and to higher respect 
than to our equals. Servants, slaves, employees, children, wives, citizens, church members are obligated to obey their proper superiors. And this is everywhere found in the Bible. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands, being subjected to your husbands. It says, citizens, obey them that have the rule of, or church leaders, church members. It says, obey them that have the rule over you. In, in Romans 13, it says, citizens, um, uh, uh, obey those, uh, the, the higher powers, it says, obey the higher powers. Now, remember, in all these uh, times when we obey those people or those entities that are over us, we must make sure that they, if they require us to violate God's will, we must always put God's will ahead of their will. And that's an important concept. And so that's point D. God discriminates based on properly constituted authority or properly constituted rank or position. And here's the last one I want to talk about. It's this. God discriminates based on age. And so should we. And I'm just going to read some of the verses in the Bible that teach that we should discriminate based on age. So age discrimination is proper. Leviticus 19, verse 32, it says this, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head. The hoary head means the, the gray head. And honor the face of the old man. And fear thy God. I am the Lord. See, that teaches respect for age. In Job chapter 32, verse 6, it says, And Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and dared not show you mine opinion. So Elihu was reluctant to give his opinion to Job, who was an older man. And that shows respect right there. And here's another verse. It's in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 22. Hearken unto thy father that beget thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. See, we need to honor our parents even though they are old. So God shows respect for age in that passage. And also 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Be, uh, Rebuke not an elder but entreat him as a father. That word entreat means treat him as a father or beseech him as a father and the younger men as brethren. So if you got something to correct your, your elder, it must be done with much deference and respect and modesty. And it doesn't mean you can't rebuke an elder, but it, well, that word rebuke, it says rebuke not an elder. I think it means to beat on him with words, to, to be uh, too free with your words. And we got to be careful of that. So this, this teaches that God discriminates on the basis of age. Now, why do you think he does that? Well, because God is old. God is older than anyone on earth. In fact, God is the oldest being in the universe. He is eternal. He always was around. So anything that, if you look at God's character, and the, the degree to something resembles the character of God, that's the degree to which we must uh, respect that. You see, and God is a man, so we should respect men. God is old, so we should respect age. 
God is morally pure, so, so we should respect those who are morally pure. And of course, God has perfect beliefs, uh, religious beliefs. His are perfect. And so we must respect those who have beliefs that are, if not perfect, at least very close to being perfect. So the more that anything resembles God, that's the degree to which that entity, that action, or that person ought to be ought to be reverenced or at least respect pure religion is defined by god's word and by reason moral truth is defined by god and by god's words gender is defined by common sense and by god's words proper authority is defined by god and by common sense age is defined by reason and by common sense and by the scriptures again the sooner we comply with common logic and God's rules and God's principles in these matters, the sooner we will be made wise, happy, free, and eternally blessed. God discriminates based on religion, morality, gender, position, and age. We must do the same if we want to have his favor. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you.